looking at the texts that stand behind the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a document of our church that describes what we think the, the Bible teaches about various topics, and uh, we're stepping back into a section. Okay. Helps to turn these on right here. Um, there we go. A section that it spends a lot of time focused on uh, the law of God. Uh, and this passage uh, tonight uh, helps draw uh, greater clarity on uh, what you might see is called the moral law. That's the title of the sermon. Uh, so we're going to spend some time reflecting on that from Romans chapter 2, looking at verses, uh, particularly verses 14 through 16, but we'll read verse, start at verse 12. Uh, for some more context. This is the word of our God. Give it your full attention. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the, he- the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So far the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing on us. Father, as we draw near, I'm uh, particularly sensitive to the thought that uh, without your help, there cannot be true understanding. Uh, Lord, we might hear your words and and receive them. We might be uh, intrigued by various things that that it reflects on, Lord, but without your work, without your spirit, Lord, your truth is at risk of being snatched up quickly and not bearing the fruit that you desire, Lord. So please be with us, attend to us. Give us your strength by your spirit, Lord, that we, that we would be those who know your word and seek to do it, that we would love you with all of our hearts, Lord, and that we would pursue you with all that we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. There is a game that I learned about when I was speaking at a youth camp uh, out in Philadelphia. It's this game called Mao, and it's not named after the brutal dictator, but you would think it would be. It was a punishing game. Mao is, for the, I can see some of you maybe know that this is, some of you teenagers, some of you kids. It's part game, part prank. Basically, it's a game where you're trying to get rid of all the cards in your hand, but there are unstated rules to how you do this. And wherever you go, there are different sets of house rules, and nobody tells you what they are. They just start doing it. They start putting away cards, and you think, well, I can do that. And they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. Only the person to the left of the person who dealt it can do that. The rules are punishing and difficult, particularly because you don't know. And even if you were in one place, 
Maybe go to a different camp and the rules would be completely different they, they, and they would all agree to it. it. It's the kind of game that makes you wonder if you're truly sane or not. This game now, I, I think, illustrates for us well the frustration that can come whenever we think about rules, especially a rule for us to obey. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about that, that God's desire for us is that we would obey him, that we would live in conformity to the world that he has made, that we would live with the grain of reality so that we would, that we would delight in his rule and reign. That's what God desires from us, is his obedience as, as the great cosmic king of over, over all of creation. But the question then comes is, what is the rule, the standard? That's the question that question 40 of the Shorter Catechism asks, is is what is the rule for our obedience? And the way that Scripture answers and the way that the Shorter Catechism summarizes this is to say it is the moral law. The moral law. And that that may not be a particularly familiar term for you, but but it's a a really powerful truth. It's, It's something that should, that we should probably spend some more time thinking about than we often do because By reflecting on the moral law, we are led to understand ourselves better as sinners. But also, and more truly, we are led to greater thanksgiving for the uniqueness of who Jesus is. That's the the key idea for tonight. The moral law, the reality of the moral law should lead us to overflowing thanks for the perfection and uniqueness of Christ. We're going to see that as we, as we consider these verses. It's, it's going to be a little different than how I typically do it, but, but we're going to jump in by asking uh, the, this question, what is the moral law? These verses help, help draw it out, especially starting in verse 14. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now that can be a little challenging because Paul is, uses the word law many times, and, and in fact he, might, he uses it in a couple different ways. Typically whenever the Bible speaks about law, we, we might think of the first five books of Moses or the 613 laws that are given in the Torah. And that seems to be what he's speaking about in verse 14 at least for the most part. But then whenever we get to verse 15, it says, they show the work of the law is written in their hearts, and this is the moral law. So we want to we wanna talk about the difference between the law given at Sinai and the law revealed in the Torah versus this moral law. And I, I want to give you four qualifiers to help you think about the moral law. The first is that the moral law is written on the heart, not just on stone. You remember at Sinai, God delivered to Moses, written by his own finger, the Ten Commandments on two tables. This is not how the moral law was at first. Rather, it's written on the heart. And this is a little bit different. If you're, if you're a, a Bible scholar, you might remember this, Jeremiah 31 of the reality of the new covenant, of 
God writing the law on the hearts of those who know Christ. No, here, this is a law that has been written in the hearts. We see, second, that it's written on every person. This moral law is unlike the law of Sinai in that it is to every person, while Sinai was something that was delivered to the Israelites. So this this moral law is written in the hearts, in the inner person. It's something that does not get removed because it's, it's built into the fabric of who we are. And it's true for every single person. This is, this is not just contained to those who attend church. This is true of people who live on the farthest away island, those who, who live on the highest peaks of the mountains, those who, who maybe live at the bottom of the sea, you know, those, those ones who are, who are maybe doing some sort of scientific investigation. Wherever you are, whenever you run across a person, God's moral law has been written into their heart. It's something that's universal and available to all people because it's something that we carry around in us. So the moral law is written in hearts, written on hearts. It's in every person. And then third, we see that the moral law is summarized in the Decalogue, that is, the Ten Commandments. The ten words that God gave to his people. The, the, the ten commandments summarize this moral law. But as, and we'll see that next time whenever we look at the shorter catechism, that the, that the ten commandments are a summary of the moral law. But, but the, the moral law existed before the Decalogue. We see that there, there are those who would live in a, in a righteous way even before the ten commandments were given. And even someone like Moses, before he had heard the sixth commandment, it was wrong for him to murder. It was wrong to steal before the Ten Commandments came along because this moral law had been written in the heart. We see this because people died. Death is the, the penalty for breaking the law. So this moral law, it's written in the heart. It's everybody has it. It's something which we'll, we'll continue to look at the content of this moral law whenever we consider the Ten Commandments, but it existed before the Ten Commandments. And finally, it continues to bind. This is a part of the law. This is the law that continues on. For, for, for the rest of our lives. This is uh, a part of us that, that continues on. Even after the theocracy of Israel f- collapsed and those civil laws were done away with and the ceremonial laws, the, the laws about priests and sacrifices, those are fulfilled in Christ. We see the moral law continues to apply even now. We know this because the apostles regularly cite the Ten Commandments. The moral law, that that law that has not been done away with, as still applying even to believers in the church. So again, the moral law on everybody, in the heart, summarized in the Decalogue, 
and it continues to bind us today. That's the moral law, and we'll continue to be focused on that over the next 10 weeks or so. But then that, that leads to a, a natural question. What, how does the moral law work? How does it work? How does it bind us? How does it, how does it bring about the intended effect? Every law, every rule has a goal to it. It has some sort of purpose there. You, you may think to yourself, well, there's, I can think of a number of laws that shouldn't exist, that bind me, you know, maybe that, that pesky speed limit thing that just always seems to be getting in the way of you getting to where you want to go as fast as you want to go. But every law has been put into place in order to bring about some purpose. And what, so what is that purpose for the moral law? Well, we see this with with what it says about the conscience. We see in verse 15, it says, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now the conscience is that part of us that God gave us that helps us to weigh whether something is good or bad. It helps us to evaluate whether we should do something or we shouldn't do something. But the conscience looks at the moral law and tells us, yeah, this is right or no, this is wrong. Yeah, this is something to be pursued or you should not be doing that. It's your conscience is the thing that 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 afflicts you in your mind whenever you're considering some sort of sin and you say, I shouldn't do that. That's wrong. The conscience is looking at the moral law and telling you that. And yet what we see is that our consciences can be seared. That's what Titus tells us in Titus 1. It says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Conscience can go awry. It can tell you that something is good, or, or maybe it doesn't accuse you when you do something bad. Conscience is, is not ultimately a reliable standard for morality because our, our consciences have been distorted by sin. And so whenever Paul says that they are a law to themselves, it's not saying everybody should do whatever they feel like doing. When in Rome, that's the morality that we see so prevalent today. No, it's, it's saying that that, believe, that, that Gentiles, whenever they do what is right, which they occasionally do, those unbelieving Gentiles, because they have the law and they have a conscience, occasionally, sometimes very often, they do things that are good. They do the work of the law. And now to be clear, again, it's, it's not that they do it in a saving way or in a comprehensive way, and we'll see that here in a moment. But, but even unbelievers are able to do good things because the law is written in their hearts. They have a conscience that convicts them. Sometimes it's been defiled and seared, uh, seared away, but, but oftentimes that's why we see good in our unbelieving neighbors. So we see that, that the moral law interacts with the conscience, and in doing so, the conscience will convict us on the last day. That's verse 16. It says, 
on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here, Paul, Paul is thinking to a future day when, when Christ will come to judge again. And we, we read in verse 5 of this, this same chapter, it says, But because of your heart and an impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What we see is, is whenever we come to stand before the creator of the universe and he holds before us the law that was written in our hearts, our conscience will say, I told you, man, I told you, you shouldn't have done that and you did it. You're guilty. You're guilty. Yeah, you did that right. That was good. But you messed up here. And so we see the law The law judges. The law is the standard of of judgment. And it's the law that that will be a part of the final judgment. When our thoughts are are brought before God, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so we see the the effect of the moral law, the, the, the intended outcome that comes about because we are sinners is the moral law works to convict us of our sin. It reveals how far we deviate in word, thought, and action from the intentions and rule of God. We know deep in our hearts that we have offended a holy and righteous God who is perfectly good, perfectly wise, perfectly powerful, And yet, we have gone our own way. And even when we try to deny it, and even whenever our conscience has become so defiled, it it does not negate that the rules are there. No one can plead ignorance. All stand guilty before God. As Romans 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is good and it is perfect. And therefore it reveals how bad and how imperfect we really are. It shows us that that left to our own devices, we deserve judgment. As lawbreakers. As those who have turned away from the blessed God. So the law is meant to reveal our sin and and convict us. But not just that. No, the moral law highlights for us the unique perfection of Christ. That every single person has offended God's law except one. Jesus Christ. He is the only one, singular. No one else stands even close to Jesus' perfection according to this law. We read in 1 Peter 2, it says, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. 
He went, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus fulfilled all of the law's demands. And when we say that, you might hear that Jesus lived a perfect life. This is what we mean. His obedience was perfect. He is spotless. At no point did he deviate. And we're thinking especially here of the moral law. Jesus never once sinned in his heart, never once violated the law, but, but truly treasured it in the way that God designed it to be. He loved God with his whole heart and perfectly kept the law. And yet we see also that not, that not only was Jesus o actively obeying his father, but we see he also, what we say is passively obeyed, that, that he was, as Paul says in Philippians 2, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He even bore the penalty in his obedience to the law. He bore the penalty of his people. All that the moral law required, the death that we deserve, the judgment that we should have faced, he faced on the cross, though he was perfect and what we would say is righteous. He had right standing before God because he had never once violated the law. This Jesus did, that anyone who looks to him, looks to his perfection, looks to him solitarily, sola, sola Christus, can receive the salvation that he offers, can receive the, the perfection that he accomplished in his life, and he offers to each and every person who looks to him in faith. So this leads us to, to ask the natural question, how should we respond to the truth of this moral law? We need to, to recognize our utter failure to keep it. And as we will see in coming weeks, we transgress God's law so often, so tremendously. And yet, we also need to Embrace the unique perfection of Christ. We need to see in Jesus someone who is utterly satisfying to his Father. One who has perfectly obeyed the law that, that has no reason to be judged, and yet he was judged. That if you, that you, that if you look to Jesus and repent, you confess your sins to him, he offers you his perfection. It's that simple. There's no work involved. It's all gift. It's all grace. It is that free. What you could never do according to the law, Jesus offers you freely and fully because of what he has done. So recognize your failure to keep this moral law and embrace Jesus' unique perfection according to this law. Now for, for a number of you, you've, you've done this in your life. You, you have repented of your sin and you're trusting in Jesus alone for your righteousness. And, 
And you may be tempted to think, well, now the moral law has nothing for me. The penalty has been paid. It's about Jesus' perfection according to the law. It has no bearing on me. And, and funny enough, the Westminster Assembly, that was the principal pastoral issue going on in London at the time. There was a movement called antinomianism that said that God's law has no bearing on the Christian life. But that is not what Scripture says. And so the Westminster Assembly penned these words. This is from the larger catechism. Uh, so a little, a little more technical, but it's worth it. It says, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate, to those who trusted in Christ? It says, although they, they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so it's not the way that we earn life or death, so as they are neither justified nor condemned, yet besides the general uses that are common to man, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good. So we are to, to see in the moral law a, a, an increased gratitude of understanding what Jesus has done for you. When we read the law, we're meant to look to Jesus and, and see in a greater appreciation for everything he has done. That when we, he was tempted, when he was beaten, he never sinned, not even in his heart. We also see, it says, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves to it as the rule of their obedience. The moral law begins to, the, the moral law has been transformed now for it, for it is a rule of our obedience, but it's a rule of obedience that flows from our gratitude. If if we want to show our thanks for what Jesus has done, we seek greater conformity to this law that he has fulfilled. This, this law reveals God's holy character. And we are called to be holy as he is holy. And because of what Jesus has done, we, we, have, we see the power of sin lose its grip on us and we can live more and more after this new obedience that Christ calls us to. So the moral law does not go away for you, believer. It's transformed, but it doesn't go away from you. And so if you were thinking, well, I don't need to come to the next 10 weeks on the Ten Commandments. Those don't apply to me anymore. You're sorely mistaken, brother or sister. I would strongly advise you to continue to come, that you might know better and better how to show your gratitude to your God, that you might live in greater obedience to Him, so the reality of the moral law should lead us to overflowing thanks for Jesus. We must recognize our sin and embrace the unique gift that only Christ can offer and find in the law not a pathway of death, but one of renewed obedience by Christ's Spirit. He has offered himself freely for us. So let's look to him with greater thanks, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's go to him now.
Jesus, tonight we confess to you that you are so utterly perfect, Lord, in your beauty, in your glory, in your wonder. And Lord, especially as we consider your law, we are astounded that you, that you have so perfectly kept the law that that your Father gave, that we so failed to do. Lord, we we are in awe. And so we pray, Lord, that you would lead us into greater thanksgiving. Lord, that as we find our consciences prick us because we we go against your law, Lord, we pray that you would help us to look to you, that you would empower us by your spirit, that we would grow in greater conformity and, and obedience to you out of gratitude for all that you have done, Lord. We thank you that by your wounds we have been healed. We pray, Lord, that we would have bigger thoughts of you. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.